the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I will be your host for today. I am co-founder of Financing Solutions, and we are the leading provider of lines of credit for small nonprofits in the United States. If you're interested in learning more about our line of credit program for nonprofits, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcasts.com. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Ellen Bristol from Bristol Strategy Group. And today's topic we're going to be covering is called Managing the Performance of the Fundraising Team. Ellen Bristol is a thought leader in managing the performance of the fundraising team to drive financial growth and consistency. She designed the Leaky Bucket Fundraising Assessment, which measures the capacity of fundraising teams to reach desired results and the methodology Fundraising the Smart Way to plug the leaks that, invent, that that plague fundraising efforts. Um, Britt Ellen is a self-proclaimed geek for performance management and a nerd for data, which fits me right into me because I love data. I think data cuts through a lot of the crap, so to speak. <laughs> so you and Ellen, I are on the same page. There we go. Ellen, welcome to today's nonprofit MBA podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thank you. So, Ellen, let's let's talk about why it's so important to track data. Uh, this is a big question, so give me room to give you a big answer. Please. If we don't have data to track, we're out in the wilderness without a compass. And... One of the reasons I got fascinated by tracking data started way back before I founded Bristol Strategy Group, which was already a long time ago, 1995. I had left my last corporate position as a senior sales executive for a major mainframe computer company. And we were just then starting to track more data that told us not only if we were winning or losing, but whether or not our team was working smart as well as working hard. So when we talk about data in any business function that has to do with raising money, like fundraising, there's a problem with it because Money is easy to measure. Everything about money appears to be easy to measure. But when you have too many measurements, you're just as confused as when you have no measurements. So the thing about measuring income growth or income consistency or donor retention, for that matter, isn't just looking at how much money falls into the checking account. It's about whether or not stuff happened at the early stages, at the the, the leading indicators, as the statisticians like to call them. 
So if we know, for example, let's say you work for me, I'm the chief development officer, you're the senior major gift guy. Well, I, I don't know what you're doing until you bring in the next, you know, the next deer you slay. <laughs> Pardon yeah. me, right? I know, oh boy, Steve brought in this big, fat, wonderful gift. Hallelujah. What I don't know is how many hours did you waste trying to chase uh, donors that weren't qualified? How much time did you spend um, in cultivation efforts, but you never pulled the trigger and said, so it seems like you're interested. Would you consider making a gift to us? So we need those kinds of data, as well as data that is readily available in most nonprofits. Most nonprofits will tell you how much money they have, how many donors they retained, how many donors they have to acquire. And when I say donor, I mean all types of investors. It could be grant makers. It could be corporate sponsors. So I, I, I hope this is making sense. The data angle in the nonprofit sector seems to be lagging behind what for-profit sales teams do to ensure consistent, predictable flow of the money so dearly needed. Yeah, I, I'd like to add to that too. I, I saw something today and I said, you know, uh, I read something today that I thought, boy, that was, that was really good. It's a very short yes. a, a sentence. It said, uh, just the act of measuring something will improve the results of it. And I thought, wow, that is, that's pretty prophetic. That's uh, you know? powerful and prophetic. And if you look at um, the his, I'm kind of an, like, I'm a real geek about this stuff because I know the history of all the, 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 the over a hundred years of management theory and discipline around measuring stuff. And it goes all the way back to the 1890s with Taylor, Frederick Taylor's improvement initiatives. So that was the first thing he discovered. If people know that they can measure whatever it is, they're going to pay a lot of attention to whatever it is. Yeah. In, in yeah. the nonprofit sector, one of the one of the most glaring problems that was that's been shown by the famous fundraising effectiveness project, you know that big project that's been running since two thousand six by Association of Fundraising Professionals. Year after year after year, they say, "Oh boy, howdy, we're losing money because donor retention rates." are frankly deplorable. They hover around 40%. Well, flip that data over and you say, oh, we're not retaining 60%. As in, gee whiz, what's wrong with you? And more power to, to the FEP project, it's very valuable, but I find that the recommendations they make to improve donor retention are tactical. 
the strategic answer is tell your people you're measuring their ability to retain donors and that the collective performance target is 50%, 60%, 90%, 94%. I don't care what percent it is, but pay attention to retention. If Because what you just said, that's a very powerful statement. Simply the act of measuring something brings attention to it. Yes, which they also say increases results. And then going back to what you're saying too, you know, I was in sales for eight and a half years for my career, for my first, I first started and I worked for you know, Xerox, which at the time was the Google of its day. And Absolutely. It, you know, it was a great organization. And I had a really, really, I had one of my good managers there. Um, and he said, he would say is if you, if you want to ensure results of your people, have measurements in place to understand their activities. Um, and, and what, what, what I liked about how he managed was, you know, one of the things, this was a little different, but he would, um, I mean, he would check and verify, but, uh, and honestly, when it came to someone like me, he didn't need to really stay on top of me because he knew I was going to deliver results. But, um, what he did do was to understand what his people were doing on an activity basis to then determine uh, what the outcome was going to be. So that way he wasn't surprised if the results didn't come through or if the results did come through. Correct. You know, so what, like, how many calls did you make? Uh, how many appointments did you go on? You know, those type of things, um, you know, everybody's business is different, but he would say, if you measure the activities that someone's doing, you're, 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 you're going to know what the outcome is. A- absolutely. I'll never forget a client of mine. Who I, I sometimes, sometimes we do business with for-profit companies. Yeah. Okay. Most of them are companies that have products or services that they sell into the nonprofit sector, like myself. So this one guy said, I'm really concerned about Jack. He's my senior guy. He seems to be increasingly disengaged. Here's a copy of his pipeline. He swears to me he's going to bring in what I want. I said, it's not possible. Based on the pipeline that you're showing me here, this guy can't make his target. He said, why? I said, well, if you look at what's going on at the beginning of his sales funnel, sales pipeline, opportunity pipeline, whatever phrase we want to use, he has one opportunity. He's got three or four opportunities that are somewhere in the middle. And then he's got one opportunity that's likely to come to a successful deal sometime in the foreseeable future. In other words, he doesn't have enough in his pipeline to guarantee that he can lose two out of three and still reach desired you know, what we would have called quota in, in sales terms. And I know nonprofit people don't use terms like that. Um, now, after studying how, um, how people work <clears throat> and how 
uh, the selling part of selling is very personal, right? It's each, each individual representative, each major gift officer, each grant writer, each salesperson, unless they're selling transactionally, and in nonprofits, that's annual fund, giving days, special events, stuff like that. Um, your style of interacting with people, Stephen, is going to be different from my style. So when I first left my last corporate position, I said, you know, there's something wrong with the way we measure activity. Because Stephen and Jack and Mary and Jane like to do this stuff, and I like to do that stuff. Some people like to take them out to play golf, right? And I said, what would happen if I flipped this upside down? And I measured the buyer's journey. What steps does do I want the buyer or in the nonprofit sector, the donor to take as a result of my activities so that I could use the activities that are congenial to me and you could use the activities that are congenial to you. But at the end of the day, we want to say every month we expect you to get X number of qualified prospects started in cultivation. In other words, they've said, uh, they've told us enough about themselves. So we decided they, they justified further cultivation. So I set up five stages like that, that are easily transferable, regardless of the source of the investment. And, um, if I'm lucky, I'll eventually turn it into a software app. <laughs> but, but what I found was that if we said, we need you to have so many new prospects in your pipeline every month, and so many prospects who have migrated from that first stage of the journey, yes, they're right for us to the second day of the stage of the journey, yes, we're right for them, to the third stage of the journey, yes, they've indicated they're willing to consider a pro gift proposal, to the fourth stage of the journey, yes, so many of them have said, this looks good to me, let's negotiate terms and scope. And then poof, you've got the fifth stage of the journey. They said, yes, they wrote a check, they wrote a pledge, they set up a planned gift. Um, the thing that was cool about that is that one of the things about data is that you have to measure the same thing the same way every time if you're going to analyze a process and figure out if that process is robust or kind of lame. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. You know, I, you know, there was something that I had always really bought into that I've, I've used throughout my career that I had learned at Xerox and that every, every sale 
and, or any fundraising effort goes through four phases or big phases. Yeah. And the first phase is the interest phase. The second phase is the development phase. The third phase is the commitment phase. And the, the last phase is the keeping of the client phase. Yeah, the um, engagement phase. The engagement right? phase. And then inside of, uh, you know, I've had a number of different companies that I've owned. And now inside of the interest phase, the development phase, and the commitment phase, and the, uh, you know, uh, keeping them engaged phase, you, 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 every industry has its own sub phases inside of those. Mm-hmm. And so as a, I think as a nonprofit, if an executive director uh, who uh, is using, you know, maybe they don't have anybody as a fundraiser and maybe they're doing it themselves, or maybe they have somebody else uh, that is doing some of it with them. If you just track how many clients uh, I'm sorry, how many potential uh, donors you have that are in the interest phase and mm-hmm. track how many of them have moved to the development phase and then track how many of them are getting close to the commitment phase and so on and so forth. You're, you're home free. You're home free, right? And if you just put it up on a bulletin board, just putting a name on something and keeping it in front of everybody. That's the trick. Yes, that was one one of the first. Yeah, I mean, this has been a constant from the 1890s and Frederick Taylor through Dr. Deming's introduction of total quality management and Six Sigma and whatever the heck they're calling it these days is make it visible and make it analyzable. Yeah, I mean, I think and, I think I think what happens when you do that too is that you know. Most people's minds are pretty logical and you sit there and you just say, if you put it up on the board and you know, those are the phases. I mean, I think you naturally gravitate toward the idea is, okay, what do we need to do to move this person forward? And and what do we need to do to move the whole collective forward? Yes. And how much time are, uh, are our, does our fundraising team understand that? Um, I had an interesting insight once the client had a major gift program and a membership program. A lot of the major donors were extremely wealthy, retired men is this particular nonprofit supported hunters. Okay. Hope nobody from PETA is listening to me. Um, and these <laughs> these were captains of industry, largely retired, affluent white men. The major gift team were a bunch of guys who loved hunting and the conservation aspects of hunting habitat conservation, so on, so on. It was really an upstanding organization. But they were good old boys who didn't have much personal money, hadn't had a lot of business experience, and there was a class difference. And they never, they, the, the, the client, I had to spend a long time with the client trying to coach them into coaching 
their major gift officers to treat themselves as if they were peers of these donor prospects because they felt that they were at a, of a lower class somehow. I can't put it any other way. So rather than making it personal, we were able to say, oh, here's what the data tells us. The data tells us you guys are spending umpteen hours in the intro phase and not getting to the development phase. And then you're not, and then you spend another umpteen hours in the development phase and you can't pull the trigger and get them to the commitment phase. So it rather than scolding these talented and dedicated young gift officers, it was, hmm, what would we have to do differently to shorten the cycle times? One thing that's great about virtually any kind of CRM technology is that somewhere in the back of the system, it's date and time stamping every action you take. So um, the wise leader will take a look at those data and say, hmm, how long did it take to get from one to two and two to three? So that's one of the reasons to go back to your initial question, why I think data is so important. It's not, uh, I mean, the reminder factor, the posting of targets and performance expectations is hugely important. The second step is comparing progress against targets. And the third step is trying to figure out what's going wrong upstream that might be easy to solve, relying on data and evidence rather than <laughs> the bad managers I've had over the years have come back and said, where's your killer instinct? And you can be replaced and stuff like that. That's honestly doesn't make a person love their job, right? right? So I've become such a, a, a metrics and performance lunatic because I can see ways that you can engage your staff more humanely and give them, if, if they don't know how to do something or if leadership's not providing the resources, the data will tell you. Tell me about a real case scenario. Like m- most of our listeners here are all small nonprofits under 5 million, right? right. You know, on average, maybe a million and a half dollars. So, I've worked with lots of those. Companies. Oh, you have. That's good. Yeah. So tell me a scenario where someone came to you and said um, that, you, that they, that, you know, Ellen, you know, we have no process at all for uh, getting uh, large donations. Um, and we, you know, I really need to start building a process and tell me about what you started off with them on and then where they ended up. Okay. So where I started off with them, this is a real client. I'm not, not going to name them, Mm -hmm. but they ended up as a great success story. Uh, serving a disabled population. 
okay? And they're, um, they're one fundraising professional suffered from the same disability, okay? Um, first thing we did was to clarify what their value proposition was. We didn't even start with metrics. So it's, it's kind of like, hey guys, what are you really selling around here? Why, why should, in, in other words, let's figure out why people should care about you in the first place. And then we went from there to, okay, you raise a lot of money from state funds and from foundations. You also raise a nice proportion of your money. They were made about 2 million bucks a year. Um, but only about 25% of it came from philanthropy. And a chunk of it came from state money, big chunk. But they wanted to build up their philanthropy program for any number of reasons. Um, so, okay, now we are clear on what you offer to people in the community you serve, which was both a disability and a geography. So who's your ideal donor? How can you tell the difference really fast between a donor who is likely to give you a larger gift and one who's going to be DOA, dead on arrival, where you'll work and work and work and work and they'll finally give you something and you, you get the whole idea. So we got some clarity on that by having them interview some of their current donors who had a combination of deep engagement and making slightly larger gifts. So the next step was, let's set up this pipeline target for major gifts, like I just described with the five stages that lead from introduction through commitment to, uh, through, through development to commitment. Yep. First question would be, how, what is the size you consider to be a major gift? And they said, $1,000. And I thought that was pretty small, but I said, okay, fine. So now we'll do a little bit of math. How much do you want to raise from major gifts? Oh, yeah, $50,000. Okay, so that would mean if we want 50 $1,000 gifts, we need to have a minimum of 150 prospects. That's three to one. Yeah. In the development stage, and 450 prospects in the introductory phase. Yep. I think it might be easier on you if you raised the floor. Well, they fought me for a while, and then they went out and started to experiment, having conversations based on the giving motivations of this ideal donor profile we created. Within two weeks, the whole team came back to me and said, you know, we're going to look at 2,500 as our entry level to major giving. Many years later, the executive director came to me and said, you know what one of the first benefits was that I got from this approach, this data-driven approach? I stopped chasing a whole bunch of grant opportunities because they just weren't worth the effort. Yeah. You gave me permission 
to stop changing what you what sales, you know, corporate people would refer to as bad business. So in in one way it's it's a lot easier to take this approach. In another, it is a big mental shift. Yeah, maybe I mean maybe it's just because I like um processes and formulas but and data but you know i think you know when you go from a haphazard approach to no process to what you're talking about i kind of feel like it calms everything down everybody knows it's just a formula and and yeah and that and that if you just keep working the steps what's going to come out at the bottom of the funnel is going to be, you know, success. Let me give you another uh, testimonial about this idea. I worked with a Habitat affiliate in another state. Now, I happened to know this, uh, their ED, because I'd worked with him in another organization here in Florida where I live, and then he moved and got this position as the ED. And, oh, boy, they were raising less than a quarter of a million before the pandemic. And let us say they did not exactly thrive Mm. at the outset of the pandemic. And first the ED went through this same evolution that you just described. He was overburdened, he was stressed out, he was anxious, and he came from a business background. And the board didn't get it at all. So they were not only not supporting him, they were making him his life more difficult. And we worked on it, we worked on it, we worked on it. And he started to get it. He started to say, oh, this is not existential terror. This is not, you know, sticking up people with, you know, with a gun in a dark parking lot and saying, give me your wallet. This is take step one, you know, first the pants, then the shoes, a simple step by step. And uh, the the project came to an end. (laughs) And six months later, I got a phone call. This is. I can't begin to tell you. It works. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Ellen, I persuaded the board to follow this step-by-step model. And then he starts to enumerate the new grants, the new gifts, the new corporate sponsorships, the transformation of the organization once everybody sort of got over their I have to call them myths mm. that uh, that produce ask reluctance or sales reluctance because a lot of people are terrified to ask for, for ask for money, as you well know. I mean, besides the death of a spouse and moving, what's the most stressful thing? Speaking in public, and the next most stressful thing, asking for money. Yeah. <laughs> so. I was motivated to do this because I had already discovered 
that if I could look at the numbers and if I could leave my emotions and my fear of rejection and my imposter syndrome and all that other baloney, just put it on a shelf. You know, I can always go back and indulge myself in all of those negative emotions whenever I feel like it. But if I'm on the phone or in front of a prospect, just forget all that stuff and follow the steps of your process and then document what worked and what didn't work and learn. Yeah. I, you know, we, it's, we only have a couple of minutes left yes. and let's, let's kind of throw out some good, good ideas of what we heard today, like a summary. Um, the, the first thing is, is, you know, picking KPIs, which is key performance indicators or measuring things, just start off by picking five things or three things that you want to measure think, and make, exactly. make and sure measure you measure those. Measure start those. somewhere, start. almost anywhere. Right. Don't like, I've made the mistake where I picked too many. Just pick the same one, pick the ones that you like. Um, and, you know, and, and what would you suggest? Like if you're just getting involved with building a new process. I have a what, great idea on please. this. Set up a key performance indicator, three key performance indicators. That's all you need. Okay. By number, how many new donors do you want to bring in at some standard of giving? Yep. Like, like the example you gave us. How yep. many donors do you want to retain? Okay. That you can do. By like a percentage basis though. Yeah. Right. So the industry standard is 40%. So uh, at least start with 45. Well, I think I would also go back and say, what, what have we retained over a one year, three year, five year period? I would do the analysis. Yeah, and anal you, that's the first thing before yeah. you do anything else. Yeah, analyze acquisition, retention, correct. and in the retention category, how many of those people have you upgraded? Um, so if you retain 45%. Oh, that's a good one. I like that How many one. times have you gone back and said, Mr. Smith, how about giving us $250 this year? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And believe me, it can be small. Somebody who gives 10 bucks a year, uh, 10 bucks a month, raise them to 15 bucks a month. Um, so acquisition, retention, and upgrading KPIs. Then I would do one other thing. I would break them down from annual to monthly. More frequently than once a month is too frequent to measure this stuff. Once a year is too infrequent. To once so a quarter. Once a quarter too to infrequent. Yeah. And then just play with what you got. Yeah, and I would add one last one, um, and that okay. is how many new people, and I'm talking about big donors type of Yeah, we're scenarios. talking not, about big investors. Yeah, not like, you know, a $10 one or something like that. You know, that, I think I, that's fine for you, the methodology you're talking about. But how many donors do we, big donors, do we have in a queue that are in the initial interest phase? Either, right. and that could be, we know somebody like that. They, we, someone recommended it to this. This person, this person um, gave us a, a donation in the past, and we know that they have a lot of money, uh, or you know something like that. Um, right. 
So start to track their names and how many people you have in that queue. Um, and put it like, you know, like I said, put it on an Excel spreadsheet or put it up their names up on the bulletin board so that you start to go from there. And then you could start going further, but not, you know, none. Yeah, you don't, you really don't need to get yourself, especially if you're a small organization, don't worry about your donor management platform because few of them have, uh, for the smaller organizations, they don't have pipeline management tools. Come to me, I'll give you my Excel spreadsheet pipeline tool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think those are some great starts. Um, and, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about, we're not talking about, we're just going to, you know, in, in a second, Ellen will give you some, her website and everything like that. So I know she's got more stuff on there as well. So I'd like to really thank so very much Ellen Bristol from Bristol Strategy Group for coming on today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. The Nonprofit MBA podcast has become very popular. We're in the top 3% of all podcasts in the world right now for nonprofits. And, um, and if you like today's podcast or any of the other ones, please do me a favor. Just give us a five-star review. It really helps get the word out and it would really be appreciated. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, or if you just want to see what's alike, um, I mean, it costs nothing to set up. It costs nothing when it's not being used. It just makes complete sense. Um, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com or call us at 862-207-4118. Ellen, if anybody wants to get some more information or if they want to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Visit the website bristolstrategygroup.com. Email me, ellen at bristolstrategygroup.com. And on the website, you're going to find a lot of opportunities to fill out forms saying you're looking for specific things. Down, you can download stuff from our resource library. I am terrible about answering the phone if I don't know who you are, but my phone number is 7 eight six five five four two six 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 text me at that address and make sure to leave me your name i'm much more likely to respond to a text yeah and that's bristol b-r-i-s-t-o-l so just Correct. so everybody when they go into it so I'd like to thank everybody and Ellen, thanks for coming on today. I'd like to Pretty thank uh, all of our listeners out there. Um, you guys are making the world a better place every single day. Ellen and I have to do our part. We all have to do our parts. We're all connected. We're all part of the human race, but I want to thank you, our listeners in particular, because you're really out there doing the heavy lifting. And I want to thank you all for what you do. And don't forget to just make sure you also take care of yourself because you're one of the key people really making a big difference in your organization and you have to be taking care of yourself. So everybody have a fantastic day.